Welcome to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. This is where we connect with healthcare providers from various clinical settings to learn more about how they are leading through innovation, protocol development, and integration of evidence to provide excellent clinical care to their patients. Join the conversation with your hosts from Medical Affairs at Baxter Canada. everyone. Welcome to this episode of I Connect with Baxter Canada podcast. My name is Michelle DeGloria. I am a registered nurse and a medical science liaison supporting the medication delivery team at Baxter Canada, and I will be your host for this episode. As always, our goal is to bring you interesting and relevant topics that influence your day-to-day practice as a clinician. Today, I am excited to welcome Ashley Harvey from Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, Ontario. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Ashley Harvey joining us for this discussion. Welcome. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your current role and your experience at SickKids, that would be wonderful. Yep. So thank you very much for having me. Uh, As you mentioned, my name is Ashley and I am a clinical nurse specialist on the acute pain service at SickKids. And I have been on this Um, on this team for probably about a year and a half now. Um, Previous to joining this role, um, I worked uh, in a bedside capacity uh, on our multi-organ transplant and medical specialties unit for about nine or ten years. Um, And then I did a six-month stint as well in our GI clinic with our inflammatory bowel disease center doing some clinical research. And I've also uh, spent a year doing um, our interpro- interprofessional education specialist role for um, the unit that I worked on, the inpatient unit here at SickKids. Um, so I've been in a few different roles, but um, this one I find the most interesting because it is working with um, another advanced practice nurse colleague as well as a team of anesthesiologists. And I've had uh, some wonderful exposure to regional anesthesia, which I think we're going to be talking a little bit more about today. Yes. Thank you, Ashley. Um, So you mentioned we're talking about continuous peripheral nerve blocks and really how they've been incorporated into um, the pain management strategies um, for some surgical procedures at SickKids. I was wondering if you would be able to tell us a little bit more about the types of surgeries that are performed and the ages of some of the patients that are um, being treated in these in with this uh, therapy. Mm-hmm. So um, our, we've been doing continuous peripheral nerve blocks for quite a while at SickKids, but um, the introduction of the elastomeric device um, has been since about July of 2020, so we're coming on two years now. Um, and specifically, we are offering these devices to patients who are undergoing um, foot and ankle reconstruction surgeries predominantly. Um, And these are patients who are usually about seven and older. Um, And the reason why we, um, for the time being anyway, are offering it for patients of that age is we we would like them to be able to understand a little bit about what's going on with Mm -hmm. their pain management. Um, And also from a developmental standpoint, we want to ensure that when they go home with the device, um, that obviously safety is of paramount importance to us. So we want to make sure that um, they understand to not, you know, sort of play with the dressing, play with the tubing, play with the bottle itself. So that's sort of why we've we've gone with um, that age of sort of seven and older. But of course, we would consider uh, younger children. And in fact, we have, I think we did have a um, six-year-old. If the surgeon, as well as our team, have sort of, you know, assessed the child and deem that, you know, they are mature enough or appropriate enough and the family feels comfortable as well going home with the device and feel that their child will be safe with it, with it as well, then 
um, then we will do that. And we have treated patients as old as, um, I think, up to 18 at this point um, with the same sort of surgeries um, as well. And in terms of the outcomes um, so far, they've been very, very positive. Um, we, I can give you a little bit more background information on, on sort of how we implemented, um, implemented the pump, if yeah, you'd like. that'd be great. Yeah, so um, it actually started as a quality improvement project. So we were really keeping it very limited to one surgeon who had um, a specific interest in using the devices and had this specific pa- patient population of the foot and ankle surgeries. Um, and basically any patient that was um, considered a candidate, we obviously would um, consent the family, make sure they were comfortable going home with the device. Um, and it, it's slow because we don't have a huge patient volumes that fall within this category. And of course, patients, again, who would meet the eligibility criteria. So it did take us about a year um, to collect patient information on about 28 patients. And we went with 28 patients because we had a comparable group um, from pre-implementation of the program. Um, Patients who would have been candidates for one of these devices, and we were looking at things like length of stay, um, predominantly length of stay, um, as well as any post-op complications. And we wanted to compare pre-implementation length of stay to post-implementation length of stay, um, which is probably one of our um, biggest uh, positive outcomes from collecting data and actually going through the quality improvement process with these devices. So in terms of length of stay on our inpatient unit for the foot and ankle surgery population, it actually decreased by 58% um, compared to our uh, pre-implementation numbers. And so we were looking at an average length of stay from pre-implementation of about 1.78 days um, to an average length of stay post-implementation of 0.75 days. So we actually went from um, basically all patients being admitted for at least one night to Mm -hmm. actually having some patients who could be discharged on the same day as surgery, which wasn't happening before. So that was a a really big deal for us. Um, The other thing that we found was very beneficial for these pumps was, um, or the introduction of these pumps rather, um, was that patients and families were just happier to be going home sooner. Um, A lot of the times with this type of patient population, um, kids are coming in for multiple surgeries. Surgeries sometimes happen in stages. They may do one side in one year and then do the other side in another year. So these are kids that a lot of them have had experience with surgery before. And so Mm -hmm. the fact that they found out, oh my gosh, I get to go home right after surgery. I only have to stay in hospital one night instead of two nights. Um, was a big deal it's for them, deal, and yeah. and same and same for the parents, right? Everyone's just more comfortable in their own homes, and so um, families were really excited about that. And um, we actually had a hundred percent of our patients and caregivers also expressing um, just satisfaction in general with pain management after surgery. So that included the nerve block, and then obviously, you know, any additional uh, medications they required for um, for analgesia. So so that was really positive as well. Um, One of the other things that we also looked at specifically was um, our staff and how they felt about the implementation of the devices and if there was an impact to their workload. Um, And so we did actually survey um, frontline staff, so our nurses on the inpatient surgical ward as well as in our post-anesthetic care unit, uh, members of our anesthesia team, orthopedics, as well as our pharmacy team. And 96.4% of our respondents um, said that they're... Uh, overall experience working with the Elastomeric device, they felt um, very satisfied with it. 
Um, and we had 75% of respondents um, say that they felt their workload associated with the device was actually less than their workload associated with um, the way our patients would traditionally receive nerve blocks, which is through a hospital pump that requires electricity. So, um, so those were probably our key, um, some of our key outcomes. I guess the last one would just be actually um, opioid use, which obviously mm-hmm. is a huge issue um, in North America um, with the opioid crisis Definitely. and us obviously wanting to be very judicious with opioids. So making sure that kids receive what they need for pain management, but also if there's a way for us to minimize mm-hmm. the amount of opioids that patients need, then great, let's do that. And so what we were actually able to find is um, no patients within our 28-patient cohort um, required regularly scheduled opioids for pain management um, by the time they were discharged from hospital. So um, that was also a big deal for us. And that's also considering the fact that, like you said, this is post-discharge from hospital, and some of these people weren't even staying overnight. That's right. Yeah, so some of the patients who were going home just from our um, our PACU or our post-anesthetic care unit um, would be prescribed home with um, Tylenol and Advil or acetaminophen and ibuprofen as we would for any of our patients. We always advise families to give that around the clock on a scheduled basis. Um, and then the opioid medication is there, obviously, for any breakthrough pain that's not managed by the nerve block and the acetaminophen and ibuprofen. And in some cases, some families didn't even fill the prescription, okay, which was, was not advised by us. We always said it's good to have it on hand just in case you need it. But um, yeah, in some cases, the families actually didn't even fill the prescription. Or if they did, their their child actually didn't require any opioids Um uh, in the immediate post-op period and when they had the nerve block. And typically, once the nerve block was removed, they weren't requiring opioids either. So um, so that was a really great um, outcome for us as well. And as far as managing the catheter, the elastomeric at home, is the expectation mm-hmm. that patients will remove the device independently once it's finished? Or do they return to a clinic? Or how does that work? Yep. So we, um, at the start of our quality improvement project, when we started sending patients home with these devices, we did put um, come up with a, a five-page education document. It is quite in detail. Uh, we send that package to the families ahead of their child's surgery, so they have an opportunity to look at it, and then they can always email uh, the acute pain service with any questions that they may have, so we can just clarify some things for them before they actually come with their child for surgery. And then we also review that package with them, again, in person prior to their child being discharged. So whether they're being discharged on the same day or whether they do have like an overnight stay on our inpatient unit, we still go over that package with them, um, including the removal and what that removal process looks like. Um, And as time has gone on, we have learned from families, feedback from families, what has sort of been the most difficult part of the actual catheter removal Mm -hmm. itself, which typically is the dressing removal because the catheter removal actually isn't really painful. So, um, you know, we're able to prep them a little bit more for what that process may look like and how to maybe minimize sort of pain and distress around the actual dressing removal. Um, And then we go over a few extra safety things with them um, just in terms of, you know, what to look for once the catheter is out. Um, and they obviously have our contact information. So if they do run into any issues when they're doing the removal, they do have somebody that they can get a hold of 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and we also follow up with them by telephone the following day to make sure the removal went smoothly and to ensure that the child's pain is well managed as the block is receding. Has there been any issue with, um, you know, malfunction or... Um, instances where it just wasn't working? 
Um, so we have we had one patient who, um, although anxiety was was quite an overlaying issue with this young man, but um, he was describing some things like blurry vision. He had a bit of a headache, just in general, didn't feel well. Um, he was hours away from his catheter being removed anyway. And so just out of an abundance of caution, um, and this isn't even really related to the catheter or the device itself. It's just more knowing the side effects, potential side effects of bupivacaine, which is the local anesthetic that we use at SickKids, um, and knowing that the um, signs or symptoms of, of local anesthetic systemic toxicity, just out of an abundance of caution, we had the, the family remove the catheter early um, and, and his symptoms resolved once the catheter was out. But his mom, his mom felt that there was more of an issue of anxiety in that situation and that's what was contributing to the symptoms. But of course, we, we note these things anyway. Right, of course. Yeah, we, and we have had um, two patients now where there has been some leaking from the insertion site, so where the catheter is actually entering the skin. Um, in one of the situations, um, that patient had stayed overnight. It was actually leaking while in hospital, um, but we um, his, his pain actually continued to be quite well managed. And so we just sent the parents home with extra dressings for reinforcing and said, keep them in, keep the blocks in for the next couple of days. He actually had bilateral elastomeric devices, so okay. on both sides. Um, and his pain continued to be well controlled despite um, quite significant leaking on the one side. So we assumed, we, we think that probably some medication was still reaching mm-hmm. the target area, but that some was leaking out. But in general, his pain was still really well controlled. Um, and the only other issue we had was uh, one young lady who did go home. And unfortunately, I think then moving from the car to the couch, um, somehow the tubing maybe got kinked or bent. We do talk to families about the fact that... Um, you know, to keep an eye on the tubing and check it frequently throughout the day, especially after the child has maybe changed positions or maybe moved, gotten up from the couch, you know, has moved into bed, whatever, just to make sure there's no kinks, bends, or twists in that tubing. Um, And that was sort of the perfect example of of where, unfortunately, the tubing did get bent. It wasn't picked up right away, and her pain did go up, and we anticipated that was probably because of the block receding, because we do think it was probably bent for, for at least an hour, maybe two. Um, They were able to spot the kink um, clear it. So presumably the block was reestablished once the medication started infusing again because her pain did improve significantly after they were able to get things going again. And then she was fine for the rest of the duration of her treatment. Um, so it was a good learning opportunity for us as well, just to realize that we really need to emphasize that tubing check with parents as well. Right. Um, overall, so it sounds very positive and mm-hmm. I know very focused right now on um, specific surgeries. Is there any plan or do you see utility in perhaps expanding the program outside of the current utilization or um, to potentially other areas? Yeah, absolutely. And we and we are actually in talk with um, one other surgeon who works in the hospital and she actually does upper limb uh, surgeries. Okay. Um, as well as our chronic pain, our, our colleagues in our chronic pain clinic, um, there may be an opportunity for using peripheral nerve blocks for either um, respite, so patients who are having pain um, that's just uncontrolled, and there's the thought that perhaps a nerve block may provide them with some relief for a couple mm-hmm. of days. Um, or in situations with patients who have complex regional pain syndrome, um, although that may be a bit more unlikely because often when they are admitted for any regional um, 
anesthetic options. It's usually um, also in conjunction with um, quite aggressive physiotherapy. So that may still remain um, for inpatients and not necessarily going home with the device. Um, and the other areas that have expressed some interest are um, our PACT team, which is pali- um, sorry pediatric advanced care team, which um, is also our, our palliative care team. Um, um, have expressed some interest in in sort of refractory uh, cancer pain or tumor related pain. Um, that it may be a great option to be able to send patients home with a port- more portable nerve block. Um, the options they use right now in the community are quite portable, but I actually think the elastomeric devices would would probably be better for patients. They're a little less heavy, a little right. less cumbersome. Um, so th- we definitely have the doors open, and, and those teams are aware that we have the devices available for use. And so um, it's sort of just waiting at this point to see if there are patient um, cases that come up that yes. could be suitable for receiving the device. But I think we are looking to expand certainly with this uh, surgeon who is doing the upper limb surgeries that um, that could be a more consistent population who does utilize the devices, much like our, our um, foot and ankle uh, patients who have reconstructions done. That's one of the things that I always enjoy the most about talking um, to clinicians who are doing different things and trying new innovative approaches to pain management in particular. As a nurse, I often, um, especially now when I reflect back on my previous practice and recognize um, what we did potentially, and I try not to feel too guilty about this because it was a standard of practice, but really when we shifted to pain as the fifth vital sign and the need to aggressively administer opioids to manage pain when potentially we were missing all of the untapped potential of the other multimodal analgesias that are available, Mm-hmm. I think that this is a great opportunity to make a difference without some of those and minimizing some of those other side effects. And we've certainly heard, I've had the benefit of talking to clinicians in other settings who are looking at, you know, wound irrigation and managing pain um, associated with wounds mm-hmm. through an elastomeric. And um, we have instances where they're, they are being used for palliative adults, but um, still for the palliative um pain management as well for those uh, patients. So it's really exciting to me when we can make a difference in patients' lives and their families' lives through um, something that I like to say, what's old is new. Um, Most people are shocked when they learn that elastomerics have been around for more than 30 years. They're they're very surprised to hear this. And um, this is wonderful. Yeah, and I'm very glad that... um Sick kids has been able to sort of jump on the bandwagon, for lack of a better term, of the elastomeric devices. Because I know, um, even when we were getting the program off the ground, one of the first things we did was an environmental scan to sort of look at what else is happening in other pediatric organizations, um, not just throughout Canada, but throughout the United States mm-hmm. as well, and to find out that there have been, um, you know, multiple large pediatric organizations that have had uh, ambulatory continuous peripheral nerve block programs in place for like over a decade in some cases, I think, um, kind of makes me go, what have we been doing this whole time? But I, you know, to the the best of my understanding, you know, I'm only being in this role for about a year and a half. There's obviously some history that I'm not aware of, but um, I think the the buy-in has been there from our, most of our anesthesia colleagues. Um, It's also finding the right surgeon to work with. And, um, you know, when, Safety is so, so important. I mean, in all pediatric organizations and healthcare in general, but 
specifically at SickKids. I know everyone takes safety very seriously. And when we're talking about introducing a new device, you know, people really want to understand, well, like, we've been getting along fine without this. So like, why now? And, you know, really showing them the literature and bringing it to the table, but also having someone who has maybe had experience, which the surgeon we work with has had experience with these types of devices before, um, to really come to the table and say, like, I've had experience, the patient outcomes are amazing. We need to push forward with this. And to really have that person in your court, um, sort of rooting and cheering you on. Um, I think that is really what actually made the difference for us and getting the program going. Yep. I would agree 100%. And all of the success stories that I have heard from other places, you are absolutely right. You need to have those champions and you need to have, you know, often what seems like strict or limiting criteria at the beginning, but it's the safest way to make sure that the change is necessary and will make a difference with a smaller patient population rather than, you know, hey, let's try it on everyone. No, let's let's be a little more controlled. And overall, that's what I hear from most other organizations is we tried a very small patient population. This is what we observed and we followed them very closely. And we were then able to identify additional options where we could expand this. I often think um, when I, especially having zero pediatric experience myself, I think what an amazing thing to be able to do to a child, you know, to give them a device that, that is potentially easier for them to manage, smaller, it's maybe not as intimidating, it doesn't beep, it doesn't make any sound, mm-hmm. um, and to eliminate some of those other uh, factors that, can, can make procedures and things a little bit more intimidating, even for adults. Um, I think this is wonderful. Yeah. Um, what would be your top three recommendations for other healthcare organizations, whether they were pediatrics uh, centers or adult centers, who were interested in implementing a CPMB uh, program as part of their pain management plan for surgical patients? Yeah, so I, I think... We probably just touched on it a little bit for probably my my main recommendation would be you got to have people who are interested in driving it forward, Um, whether that is in the form of the surgeon who is interested in using them in their patient population, um, as well as um, an anesthesia team, the people who will actually be performing the nerve block itself, placing the catheter. There have to be uh, people who are interested in driving the change and are committed to the work that has to go into um, selling it really to other departments in the hospital. Um, so I would say that would be my, my sort of first and foremost recommendation is, is having the champions as I would, what I would call them. Um, the other, one of the other things that I think has been extremely helpful for our program specifically, and I know a lot of the other um, pediatric organizations that, that do offer these devices do have a dedicated acute pain service. And I don't necessarily think that that is a requirement, but I do think it is very helpful. And the reason why I think it's helpful is because the attention to detail that we're able to provide um, to sort of assessing appropriateness of patients before they even come to, to come to their OR. Um, and then, and then the, the detail in the follow-up yes. because I do think if you tell a family, we're going to send you home with the device and don't worry, we're going to teach you how to remove it. But knowing that there's someone who's going to call every day to check in, make sure things are going okay, and that there's a number of someone that they can reach um, 24 hours a day, I think 
really helps to put their mind at ease to know that I'm not really alone. Like I'm going home alone with it, but there is someone just a phone call away if I have any concerns or questions about it. So I think, you know, having a dedicated acute pain service is great, um, but not completely necessary. If there's, you know, again, I mentioned the champions or a team of people who really want to drive it forward, people make it happen, right? Um, But certainly, you know, having having an APS is helpful. Um, The other thing that I think certainly for sick kids, and I'm sure it's not unique to just sick kids, but um, there really needs to be good engagement with the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. The stakeholders being the other people in the hospital who are involved in the process of getting the device prepared, sending the device to where it needs to be, um, the frontline staff who are going to be caring for these patients, so not just the nurses, it might also be the physiotherapists, um, um, child life specialists who may be seeing the patients if they are admitted for a day or two making sure that they are aware that this is something that is going to be offered to patients. Mm -hmm. This is the rationale for why this, this device is beneficial for patients and families, sending them home sooner or less opioids, better pain control overall. We're opening up um, beds for other patients who maybe can't go home by being able to send patients home sooner and just, and really helping them understand why we're introducing the device, but then also saying to them, we want to understand what the impact is to your workload. Because if, if we're finding that your workload has now gone up, maybe it's great for the patients, but this is not great for, for our nurses and for our other frontline staff. So making sure that there's good engagement from the beginning with the other people who will be impacted by this change. um, And then staying in touch with those people throughout the process to really understand what's going on, um, I think has been sort of, again, pivotal to the program having the success that it's had. Um, And then as we move forward, looking at program sustainability and perhaps increasing patient volumes, again, we have to have the buy-in from these stakeholders. And so I think Early engagement and good engagement helps with buy-in um, from from those key people um, is is also critical. So that would be that would probably be my other recommendation. Amazing. You have provided so much information today, Ashley. It was wonderful chatting with you and learning more about the program at Sick Kids and and hearing the success that has been observed and uh, the benefit ultimately to these patients, which is better pain management, being able to go home and be with their family and um, eliminate some of those other stressors that often accompany a surgical procedure. This has been a fabulous discussion. I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your experience, and I look forward to chatting with you again. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed myself. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To listen to more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe to ensure you always receive notification. Please reach out to us by email if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. We look forward to having you back with us next time. Thank you for joining us for the episode of I Connect with Baxter. All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iConnect at Baxter.com.